Why in the world am I here? You know, I, I've been walking around and visiting with people and meeting people, and I imagine there are some here who would think, I hear that this guy is here and he's working with Lamb, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the deal is. What's the deal with this guy? I decided tonight, because, look, I can preach about anything, all right? I decided to seize the opportunity tonight because I'm, I am just newly here to talk to you about why I'm here and what that has to do with you, and in particular, why in the world I left where I was and why I felt that that was worthy. To sum up Latin American missions, and trust me, I know how it is when you hear a missionary that comes up and they start showing you pictures of people you don't know and things like that. And it can be easy to kind of tune out and you think, what's this have to do with me? But bear with me. I feel your pain with that. But I want to tell you that there are some exciting things going on. If you could sum up Latin American missions with two words, it would be gospel opportunities. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. My, my first experience with Lamb, and I, I guess I knew that it was Lamb, but for me it was the Yes To campaigns. That's where I got recruited. I was with a, a congregation where we have bilingual people, and so I was recruited to bring people who could translate and so we could have more evangelism teams. But I didn't know the big picture. But what it was, was a gospel opportunity. And in this way, when I say gospel opportunity, what I mean is opportunities for the gospel to go out and opportunities for the gospel to transform people who are already Christians. By taking the gospel out. When I first participated, and I was asked this recently, what was the greatest uh, takeaway or feedback or impact from that? The first thing that came to mind was my good friend Araceli. It took me about five years to even begin to pronounce her name correctly. She's the secretary where I was preaching for years. We're like brother and sister, really. And she would go, and she would be my translator, and she is typically the best translator wherever she goes. You can't, can't even tell what her first language is. It's quite amazing, actually. They usually defer to her. What, what, how is this translator? And she'll, she'll know how to translate that. And she's impressive. But... When I first, I first gave the idea, you want to go on a campaign, I had, I had been on, on some, uh, some types of campaigns. I went to Africa for several weeks. It was, I was new to this. And I brought that opportunity to her, and she said, I never thought I'd have the opportunity to do this. I've wanted to do this all my life. And so she went. And she discovered a part of herself that she really didn't know was there. She, she found she found what you might call her wheelhouse. She found a place where she really thrived. Walking down the street or a dirt path or somewhere, she could instantly become best friends with anybody she meets. And because I know a few Spanish terms and I can understand a little bit, I didn't, I didn't you know, uh, I wasn't in charge, so to speak, of everything that needs to be said to this person. I just kind of let her do her thing. She's, she's great at it. And she found herself entering into and fulfilling a purpose that she simply didn't even know existed. It is her favorite thing in the world. And many times when we're somewhere, she just says, I think I'll just move into this house right here and just kind of disappear. I can just fit right in here. She loves it there. Wherever we go, she loves the people. 
And it's great bringing her because she can become friends with all of the people that are there in the, the host congregations who don't speak English. She just sits with them and learns and just and gossips about all the gringos and it's hilarious, right? They talk behind our backs and it's, and it's funny because, because she kind of becomes one of them, kind of blends in. And she's great at it. It's a, it was an opportunity for the gospel to transform her perception of what she brought to the table in the, in the kingdom. What do you think you bring to the table in the kingdom? It's probably very, very low compared to what you really have to offer. That's what she discovered. Another thing that I discovered on my very first campaign was when, at the end of the week, it just occurred to me that everybody that was there had a job, and they all did it. And not one of them said, no, I don't feel like doing this. I've had a bad day, I'm tired. Because we're all tired. We're all exhausted. And sort of my motto on every campaign is, I'll, I can sleep when I get home. Uh, you know, when, when I, my last, let's say, when I was in Costa Rica with some of you, I was there and I had, I had Bible studies at lunchtime and I had Bible studies with people that worked at the hotel when we got back. And I, I just said, I'll just sleep next week when I get home. But what I discovered was, something that we kind of talk about as a problem in the church here, when you think of sometimes, and it depends on where you are, I know, but sort of a cliche, but kind of true way of thinking about it is, is that when it comes to any particular congregation of the church, you have about 20% of the people doing 100% of the work. And that varies from place to place. But what I witnessed on that first campaign was 100% of the church doing 100% of the work. And, and it, it helped me to have some clarity about the potential for any congregation on the planet. Any congregation has the potential for 100% if they understand what they have to offer and they just say, yes, I'll do that. It's 100%. Blew my mind because I thought, wait, I didn't know this was possible. But it was. I witnessed it. It was possible. Now, my personal goal in life is for, and I pray about this, I pray specifically for this, that the Lord will use me in the kingdom in the most effective way possible, whatever that is. It wasn't that I can preach or that I can, I, I can be a professor somewhere or that I can do what I'm doing. I, I didn't know this was on the table. I probably mentioned that the last time I was here or the last time I spoke. My fulfillment or my joy, in fact, I, just about an hour ago, I got a text message from a, a, one of my a dear friends, a, a couple that are, they're, they're my, my mother and father in the faith in Texas. And they texted me and they said, they said, one of your boys, Sebastian, preached this morning and we could see a lot of you in him. And I texted them back and I said, you're making my joy complete. You know, Paul... Peter, John, James, they would make statements like that. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. You've made my joy complete by being faithful. My fulfillment in life comes from allowing the Lord to use me to build up and edify Christians and to bring the gospel to people. And so, when I first spoke with the elders here, and they began to describe to me things I didn't even know about, even as a participant of Latin American missions. 
I began to see the potential not to just have an impact or, a, or some kind of an effective uh, ministry with one congregation. Not that there's anything wrong with that in particular, but what they described was the potential to have an effect for the gospel in dozens, if not hundreds of congregations. It took me about 24 hours to realize that. But once I realized it, once I realized it, I, I knew that was it. You know, I'm a, I'm a single man, and I, I've said it this way, that when I have that sort of clarity about a woman, I know who I want to marry. All right? I had that kind of a clarity about the possibilities of this ministry. And in particular, it's the Lord's work, but I'll get into that. Now, Bill told me I had 15 minutes, so let's get, let's get rolling here. Uh, let's see here. Uh, my, my personal journey, I, I have, because I want to be effective, I have, I have put myself out there to be used in various ways and was told no. And those were disappointments. And that's okay because I, 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 I entrusted that to the Lord. I gave that over to the Lord and I, I trusted that my life was in His hands. You know, when I think about the idea of the God saying no to me, my mind immediately goes to Acts chapter 16, where Paul's, he's commencing the second missionary journey, and he, he meets and recruits Timothy, and then the Spirit says, no, you can't go to Asia, you can't go to the And then he has this vision where a man is from Macedonia saying, yeah, come over here to Macedonia. And so the Lord has prevented him from going some places because there was a particular place to go. Now, of course, because he was prevented from going to particular places, the places that he went are places that we know about very well. He first went to Philippi, and from there he went to Thessalonica. Then he went to Berea. And from Berea, of course, he went down and he preached in Athens, Mars Hill. And from there he goes to Corinth and stays there where he meets Priscilla and Aquila and establishes the church along the way in these areas. And so the, the places that we think of as Gospel opportunities for Paul came after the Lord told him, no, 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 I have another place for you to go. And that may be where you are right now, and that's okay. It may be that you're, that you're facing a wall and you're saying, I'm not exactly sure where to go. Well, our goal with what has been accomplished in Latin American missions is to offer and present and communicate and to show opportunities to fulfill your purpose in the church. Gospel opportunities. One of the things I wasn't really clear about when I was a participant with Latin American Missions was the big picture. I was really kind of oblivious. I think it's par for the course. I just had a conversation with a lady who's done maybe seven campaigns. And I mentioned the school and she said, well, what she said was, told me that she didn't even know what country the school was. She didn't, even, she didn't really have any idea. But the big picture is this. It's very, very simple. The big picture is that 1965, the school was established. It may have been established before that. We took over. I don't know exactly the history of it. Robert could tell you. Now, and sit and listen to Robert tell you the history. It's important for us to know what has been done before. But that's about 57 years ago. The, church, the, church, the churches there were... I think there were two or three churches in Panama. The school was established, and now there are hundreds of churches. The numbers don't lie with the effectiveness of the model, 
of, of establishing a school of preaching, having what you would call native people come from their countries to that school of preaching and then going home and establishing congregations. And that really is what the heart of Latin America Missions is. It's sort of the, the heartbeat where we have, we have an intensive training there of men who can then go and establish congregations and teach the gospel there. And they become what is, you might say, the, the second area of focus, which is the alumni. I have a list here that I've been going through and trying to master. It's a, it's a spreadsheet of a, about 90 or so preachers who we would call our guys. These are known quantities. These are guys that we have trained. And they are in their own co- co- uh, countries, uh, their home countries, and they have established congregations or they have... They have picked up the torch from other people and they are carrying on there. And these are people that we need to know. I'm going to encourage you about that in just a little while. But I have, I have purposed myself at getting to know these different guys in, in several countries, in Central and in South America, because they are people that have a connection to this place. They, uh, I think Rosalina told me that they call this place the Valdosta Church. They don't even call it Forest Park, I don't think. They just call it the Valdosta Church, a lot of them. And and this place has a reputation, whether you know it or not. It has a reputation for being being the ones who spearheaded this thing and are overseeing and maintaining this. And so the alumni are there, and they live maybe on $250 to $500 a month. Part Part of my... uh, work here is going to be going to bat for those guys so that they can have more resources and going to bat for the school so that it can have more resources so that the, the students there can be supported. You move along a little bit and you have what a lot of us have participated in, which are the campaigns. And the campaigns are there so that we can go and establish relationships, really, really relationships that should already be established. And that, that's part of the key that I think maybe has been missing. When I would go to a place, I didn't know who was going to be there. I didn't know. Sometimes when I was there, I never even knew who the preacher was at that congregation. And that's a shame. I came there to encourage that guy and to build a relationship with that guy and his family and the members who were there to help them cultivate contacts and to have Bible studies with people and and to jumpstart their evangelistic work so that they could begin to grow, so that they could grow, so that eventually they could be self-supporting. We'll get to that in a minute too. One way I think about this work, is so many of you that have worked for decades with it, is just what Jesus said in John 4 about, about the fields are white, white to harvest, he said this in John 4, 38, I sent you to reap that for which you do not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. It is an important thing for us to understand the work. And I, it is part of my goal to recognize and to honor that. Those who have done so much over the years, who have kept this work, the momentum of this work going along, and, and that we have the privilege to, to step into it, to enter into other people's labors. What a beautiful thing that, that God has made that the church and its work is intended to be a multi-generational work that just continues and continues with faithful people. We have the opportunity to step right into that and to take the opportunities for the gospel that we find within it. Now, I didn't know about really about the school. 
I didn't know about the alumni preachers. I knew that we were just going to go to some place in a faraway land and have Bible studies with people. That's about the extent that I knew of it. But I didn't know the symbiotic nature that we were going to congregations who from those congregations, there would be those who would be cultivated to then be sent to the school so that the church can then grow and grow and grow. And that was the pattern that brought the church in Central America from just a handful of congregations to now hundreds. It's, it's something that works. You know, I've discussed this with a few people that there's, there's a precedent, even though it can be a little bit like, it's one of those things that makes your eyes roll into the back of your head when a missionary comes up to do a presentation. There's biblical precedent for that. There's a few places in Antioch and Jerusalem where Paul would come and he would talk about what the Lord, what God had done through him. He wouldn't talk about, well, look what I've done, look what I've done. Look what... He would say, this is what the Lord has done. And he would begin to tell them, because it's important for us to know the things that we invest in, the things that we are associated with, even, that, even things that are our ministries, even by proxy, it's important for us to understand what the gospel is doing, how that involves us, so that we can be aware of opportunities to help, but we can also be aware of what our work has been doing somewhere else. It's important for us to be informed what the gospel has actually been doing in places. It's easy for us for something to be out of sight and out of mind. It's important for us to know all of the things that because of the work that we continue here, the gospel is continuing to be able to do, even though we, we are totally unaware of it sometimes. The essence, really, of a preaching school, the essence of the campaigns that we go on, specifically the yes to, sort of the way that those are, are set up, is 2 Timothy 2.2. Which is the recipe for perpetual discipling. Paul tells Timothy, he says, he says, teach faithful men to be able to teach people, to teach people, to teach people perpetually. The goal is to be able to go and to equip people so that they are equipped to be able to teach other people how to equip other people. And that's the goal that we have. That's the, that's the purpose of a preaching school, but it's residual throughout all of the congregations and all of the participants that we have for those who go on campaigns. And it all works together. All of the works reinforce each other. Symbiotic, in a symbiotic nature. And so these are all of the gospel opportunities. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be visiting, I don't know how many congregations, and talking to elderships and talking to, to, to people who perhaps have participated in campaigns but didn't really know what was going on. The primary places of need, really, as far as, as, far as financial support, the play, fi primary places are the Bible School of the Americas in Panama. And I'm go actually going to be there. I'm going to visit there for a few days in a few weeks to get to know the students there and to, and to get to know the faculty and establish relationships with these people and to let them know that I'm there really to work for them and to help them gain encouragement and support. To let them know that what they're doing is important. And so that's one of our, our you might say, the primary area of need. If, if I were to tell you where, where do we need finances, it's, it's the Bible school. We also need it with the alumni who go out and they, they essentially sacrifice 
any sort of a, a lucrative uh, business life of any kind and they just give their life to the gospel. And they're sort of at the mercy of that. And there's a lot of financial need there. Uh, apart from financial aid, which of course this costs money, if you want to participate, if you want to go and you want to help, there are campaigns. We actually have one coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, I bet it's too late for you to go on that one. But that's what the, the campaigns are for you to go and for you to actually be there and for it really to impact you, for you to be able to unlock, you might say, some, some of the areas of work of the kingdom that you, you probably have left untapped so far. When you go on these campaigns, they impact you much more than you impact. At least it feels that way. It's hard to say what God is doing. We're leaving it over to God, and, and He brings the increase when we take the gospel. But I know that we, you will always feel like you are impacted more than you impacted someone when you go. And, and in that way, and this is important, in that way we go and we build up the church. But like I said, it's symbiotic. What we do there happens for those who go. Anyone who's gone on a campaign, and this happened where I was preaching for 13 years, anyone that would go on a campaign, they would come back and they were completely different. Their mindset of evangelism and of priorities and of what they can actually do for the kingdom. Their perception of, well, I, you know, I'm, I don't really matter. No, they matter. And they realized it. They were empowered. And they were never the same. It will transform congregations in the United States who participate. Just as much as it transforms the congregation there, if we do it right. If we do it right. Of course, and this is one of the things that we, I hear from time to time, you know, it can be easy for someone who is, who is living on support from a congregation of the United States for them to kind of be in limbo, just doing that forever. The end goal for all these congregations must be that we're helping them to grow so that they, have, they are doing two things. Number one, they are autonomous. And when the time is right, they have an eldership. That's an important thing because it, 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 is, not, it is not the pattern of God for for some congregations to, to prop up other congregations forever. The goal is for them to be autonomous, to have elders, to be able to be self-supporting so that they can then help to support other congregations around them. If that's not our end goal, then we should just quit. It, we have to have a clarity of what our end goal for that is. And so that's, that's part of the decision-making that, that, that we are making. Um, Every time I ask the elders a specific question, they don't really give me an answer. And it is hilarious. But it's, but it's, actually, it's actually brilliant. What the elders have here is a big picture, long-term goals. The Bible school, when was it established? 57 years ago? If we are to be good stewards of the work that we have entered into... We have to be making decisions in terms of how will this affect the kingdom in 10, 20, 50, 100, 200 years even. That will change the way that we do things. Because I get answers from the elders about, okay, what am I supposed to be doing? And how are we going to do this? And they give me, they give me really long-term goals. You know, one of my favorite movies is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. All right? And at the end of that, there's a point where he has to do what's called the leap of faith. 
and it's really kind of poor special effects, but that's okay. I, I, I cut him some slack. But it's where he, he, he sees in front of him that there's no ground. And he just has to step and have faith that there's going to be some ground under his feet. And so whenever I ask the elders, okay, what are we supposed to do? They say, well, this is the direction we're going. And so in essence, it's a matter of, i got to look about 100 miles into the distance, which, which is a point of clarity, it really is, to know where you're going. And, to, and to, just take, to just take a step and then, okay, where did your foot land? Well, wherever your foot lands is where the Lord needs your foot to land. Now, what that means is, is that because we're trying to do things in a way that we're asking new questions, it means that we don't really have all the answers, which means we need your help. We have long-term big picture goals and we need your help in figuring out where we're going along the way. But if we have that ultimate goal and we're, we're entrusting it to the Lord, we're having faith in the Lord, then as we take those steps, it will become evident to us what we need to do along that path. And we feel very optimistic. Optimistic enough that I moved here. And I just want to take a minute to thank the people that helped me move all of my stuff. I think that y'all should apply to uh, change out tires at NASCAR because they're like the fastest guys in the world. Um, I just want to take an opportunity. All of y'all that have helped me, not only to feed me and make me fat, but all of y'all that have helped me just move. Uh, I have experienced so much love here. The reason I did that is because I believe that the the long-term vision that the eldership has here is worthy. That I came all the way to this place where it was this humid. All right? As I've talked to some of you here, some of you have even said it this way. Latin America missions has kind of hit a ceiling. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason why I'm excited about what we're doing. Instead of asking the question, how many campaigns can Latin America missions do? Instead of that, because, I mean, what we're doing, maybe 10 campaigns, uh, various types in the summer. And that would, be, that, that would be pushing it. I mean, you're talking about wearing some people out. Instead of asking that kind of a question, uh, ask this question. And this is actually one of the very, maybe the only specific thing the elders have told me to do, is to begin to cultivate a list of faithful men that can do campaigns. That it isn't just about what we can do in-house or those who are directly tied to us, but the people who will partner with us so that it isn't just a matter of, okay, we're going to kill ourselves doing 10 campaigns to, okay, you know what? We're doing a reasonable amount of work and there perhaps are 40 or 50 campaigns going on because we're asking different questions than we used to ask. Now, we're talking two, three, four, five, ten 10 years into the future perhaps, maybe, maybe soon though, because we're changing the way that we think. It isn't just a matter of asking the question, how many congregations can we get to support Latin America missions? How many, how many congregations can we get to give financially or to go on campaigns with us? Instead, the question is, I'm talking big picture, long term. How many congregations over time can we get to replicate what has been done here? How many congregations can we help to facilitate going into a country of their choice establishing a preaching school 
training their own guys, having, the, you know, having their own list of guys that they have trained, sending their own campaign. See, that's, see, that's what we're talking about going past that ceiling that we've hit. We, we have done, well, we, I say we loosely, those who have come before, they've done so much. But the potential lies in being able to enlist other people to replicate what we've been doing. To model what we've been doing. I'll get to that in, in, uh, in just a second. Um, one thing I want to tell you is, is that in asking and answering these new questions, the elders are very concerned. They're, they're guiding principles. Some of them are being good stewards and making things as effective as possible. And that's some of the things that I've been working on. And I want to mention someone named uh, Rafael Paguega. He's, he's going to be sort of my right-hand man. I'll, I'll be Batman, or he can be Batman. I don't care. One of us will be Robin. And, and we'll be sort of the dynamic duo. And he's going to be someone who can do things in Latin America that, that keeps me from having to go down there all the time. And he's a, he teaches at the school. He's only 28. He is a humble intelligent, talented, a very sweet guy. I encourage you to send him a Facebook friend request, all right? But I'm going to meet with him and spend about a week and a half with him uh, very soon. But, but what he's going to be able to do in facilitating the planning of campaigns and things like that is going to lower a lot of the costs that we have. And so those are the types of plan that we're trying to do. On the campaigns, I, I, am, I am really looking at trying to standardize a lot of things. Everyone using the same types of Bible studies, having some type of training when we go there so that the congregation and everyone from the United States that goes on the campaign, you're trained in how to have a Bible study, how to follow up with contacts, how to take records of everyone so that everyone that we meet, you know, you go there, anyone that's been on the campaign, you have a Bible study with someone, and then you go back to your home and you, and you have no idea whatever happened to Carlos or Jose or Maria. You don't have any idea. What we'd like to do in the future to make things more effective is to give more attention to follow-up, more attention to not letting those contacts fall through the cracks. That, those, that, those, that information, that list of contacts we have is like gold evangelistically. And One of the consequences of that, of course, will be that when those who have come to do the campaigns, when they go home, guess what? Not only are they on fire to do evangelism, but they've, they've actually had some training. They've been equipped. They actually know what to do. There are a lot of people that come home from the campaign like, man, I'm really excited about what to do, and they kind of don't even know where to start. And that's one of the things we want to do is make things more effective as long as being more efficient. <coughs> what does that have to do with this congregation? And that's one of the reasons why I have a dual title, Director of Latin America Missions, which... I think is a hilarious title for me because I think of the work as so far beyond what I have any business being a part of. Minister of Foreign Evangelism. The elder said, here you're a minister of foreign evangelism in this group. And why is that? Because the congregation here plays a very specific and serious role in Latin American missions. The big picture goal for this congregation 
is for this congregation to be the model congregation that other congregations can look to and can emulate and they can replicate what has been done here. Whether it's establishing schools, training preachers, being able to do campaigns, planting churches, all of those things. When congregations are, are, are sold on it and they want to do the work, then I will go and I will help facilitate and help train them to be able to do that. And I've got a lot, big, a lot of learning I've got to do on my own as if I know everything. But the goal is, is to help equip them by being a model congregation ourselves. One thing that's very important for the growth of the work, the Lord's work, not just Latin America, the Lord's work overall, is for us to never think in such a way that we are territorial about the work. We must never have the mindset or give the implication to other congregations. And they have this idea, because I've talked to them, that Latin America missions and Forest Park are somehow the gatekeepers of mission work. I've talked to some people who said, well, you know, we've wanted to do stuff, but we don't know if we should do it apart from them because we don't want to hurt their feelings or we don't want them to be mad at us or... We've got to do away with that stereotype that we are somehow the gatekeepers of mission work. And that anyone that wants to get, get active and do that on their own, that we are going to do nothing but, but cheer them on, encourage them, equip them, and help train them in any way. It may be that they say, we want to do that, but, but we're not sure how to do it yet. And we'll say, well, let's come and be with us. Come and go on campaigns with us. Learn how to do this for a few years, and we'll help you Figure out how to do this on your own. Rather than, it's all about what we do here. There's a limit. We hit the ceiling. We're talking long term. We're talking decades. We're talking centuries. We're talking about letting the Lord bring the increase in His time. By not being short-sighted or nearsighted. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 6, Paul says, he says this, and this is, this is who we are. This is who we are here, whether we like it or not. You have a reputation. This congregation has a reputation. Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols and served the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Whether you like it or not, this congregation has a reputation for doing this work. It is important to understand that there is no wall of separation between the Forest Park Church of Christ and Latin American Missions. Latin American Missions is, is a work that is yours. It is your work. I've been told by a lot of people that that's, that's kind of not been the case. Or there, there maybe has been a lack of ownership. Or a sense that, you know, it really doesn't have anything to do with us exactly. Some of us participate sometimes. But that's not really ours. We don't really have our teeth in it. Some here do. But maybe in general that hasn't been the case. 
But here's what I want to tell you. The evangelistic work that you do here has, and I use this word a few times, has a symbiotic effect with the evangelistic work there. The evangelistic work that you do there will have a, will have a symbiotic effect on the evangelistic work you do here. Your dedication to taking the gospel and seizing gospel opportunities there impacts here and here impacts there. And we have to realize that, that is, that's what happens with any participating congregation. And so it must be here as well. At the heart of what my work is, is relationships. And that's one of the things that I would encourage you to do is to focus on relationships. Now, I've been trying to get, a, get to know a lot of you here. I've been trying to get to know all the preachers on this list that I have. I'm trying to get to know all of those who have gone on any of the campaigns. I'm trying to get to know all, all of those who have given to Latin American missions. And you know what? That's like hundreds of people, all right? Well, I'm not telling you to get to know hundreds of people. What I am saying is this. One of the easiest ways to take ownership is to make yourself aware. And I can help you get in touch with some, Learn who some of these people are. Learn who the people at the school are. Because they know who you are, at least by reputation. Look them up on Facebook. Use Google Translate. Send them a message of encouragement. I'm praying for you. I appreciate what you're doing at the school. Look at some of their alumni who've been working for decades in some places that in, in conditions that we could never imagine. Hey, they're on Facebook. They're on social media. Look them up. Be friends with them and say, hey, you know what? I'm aware that you've been doing this. And you may just pick one and just... Just dedicate yourself to praying about them, building a relationship with them, because it's a beautiful thing to be able to go on a campaign or to go to the school and you actually, you actually know the people before you get there. That's something that was missing, at least for me, on the campaigns that I'd gone on in my participation in Latin American missions. Seize the opportunities to reach out to those who are part of this work who need your encouragement and need to know that you are here, that you, you care about them. Because those relationships are key to this, to this family here. Really seizing a sense of ownership of this work, of this ministry. This is the Lord's work. Is He using you? Or are you resistant? Gospel opportunities abound, but we're good at just not taking them. My goal is to communicate opportunities to people who don't even know about them, and they thank me when I've told them because now they can participate. But have you been resistant? Or have you made yourself useful? Maybe you've been focusing on yourself. Maybe you've even let sin get into your life and sin is running the show. Let me encourage you. Stop being resistant. Stop, as, as it's been said, stop running errands for sin and letting it tell you how to run your life. Look at the opportunities right in front of you and say to God, I, I surrender my life to you. I'm no longer going to be resistant. Use me. However 
for the kingdom. And he will. There's likely someone here tonight that's not, not even a Christian. And the Lord has not used you at all because you've been resistant with your life. I want to tell you that just, just like everyone who is in the body of Christ, the Lord has a place for you in His kingdom. The Lord has a place of usefulness for you. I always think about the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful. And I always think, well, Jesus asked him to follow him because he had something in mind for him to do. But he was resistant and he didn't make himself useful. Specifically, God has a place for you in his kingdom as a part of his royal priesthood in Christ. An amazing thing that we are unworthy of. But a role that is free from sin, a role that will will totally transform your life into a life in which you're no longer a slave to sin, but you have been picked up and taken and placed within the kingdom of God so that you are useful within something that is bigger than you and has, has an eternal effect. As Jesus said, a kingdom that's not of this world. That's what... That's what is offered for you, is that type of life in Christ. And so the Lord is ready to use you. Have you made yourself useful? If you want to become a Christian, you you can be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you have any questions about that, come talk to me and we'll study about that. There are a lot of people here that will study with you about that. And I want to tell you that this is sort of, my because I've just gotten here, I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of give an introductory look at the direction that we're trying to go. And by no means have I said everything. There's a lot more that's going to be said in the future because because we're working out the details while we're focused on the goal. Pray for this work. Pray for me. I'm a bit overwhelmed, but in a good way. I'm thankful for the Lord that I'm here. And I, I love you all very much. And I'm undeserving of the love that I've been shown. At this time, we're going to have a song of encouragement. If there's any way that you have not made yourself useful, you haven't given your life over to God, don't leave this place without making that right. So if there's anything you need to do, please come as we stand and sing this song.